great to be with you and uh, great to be back. Uh, last, last Sunday, or last weekend, I was doing some work with the Peace and Reconciliation Network of the World Evangelical Fellowship of Canada uh, in Toronto. We're working with diaspora peoples, so peoples from other parts of the world who have moved to North America, but their hearts are really still in other places. And so we're equipping them to think about how to be a people of peace and reconciliation in the world and to impact the places they've come from. So it was a great day, and I'd love to tell you more about it. But that's maybe for another time. Take your Bibles, uh, go to John uh, chapter 9. Keep your finger there this morning. This is where we're going to end up. John chapter 9. So 12 years ago, we took our, our three little kids to a movie. We settled in for the only animated film that uh, was showing in our local theater. It was Disney's Meet the Robinsons. Anybody... Anybody? Okay, this is, this is why you can get it at thrift stores. Okay, so there you go. Okay. So, so we're, we're, we're an adoptive family, and, and un, unbeknownst to us, Meet the Robinsons is about an orphaned little boy, little genius named Lewis. And it's humorous, and it's gut-wrenching. It's this journey into this longing for family and identity and purpose when life is full of questions. The film's the title song is called Little Wonders by an artist named Rob Thomas. Here are the words. Let it go. Let it roll right off your shoulder, don't you know? The hardest part is over. Let it end. Let your clarity define you. In the end, we will only just remember how it feels. As our lives are made in these small hours, these little wonders, these twists and turns of fate, time falls away. But these small hours, these small hours still remain. And it had been challenging days for us as an adoptive, as adoptive parents. And while our, while our three little wonders chuckled away, Jen and I were entirely wrecked. All of my regrets will wash away somehow, was how the song continued. But I cannot forget the way I feel right now. Blast you, Disney! <laughs> We just wanted to forget the pain for a while and were melting into puddles of snot and salty tears. And when did the Holy Spirit decide he could use animation? It's not fair. Five years later, 2012, things were spiraling wildly out of control in our family. Our oldest son was 15, he's living with a brain-based disability, wonderful young guy, but out of control. And uh, agonizingly painful decisions needed to be made. And I was a pastor. When we were sinking in the deep end of our increasingly mom-and-pop operation, now we had five kids that we were blessed with. And by Christmas, our oldest son was in a group home. We were a mess. With joy, we received him back on Christmas Day. And then I took him back. My son took him back to this residence. I was sure of my failure as a father, my inadequacy as a pastor. And as I left him behind that day, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I burst into snot and salt again. And I cried out to God as I drove away from that place. We obeyed you when we made that boy our son. Why did you do this to us? Why does it hurt so much to love? 
There was silence. And there's this word from the Spirit of God. Now you know how I feel. Whew. And I knew that was true. Like, it just hit me as true. Like, I was feeling something of the pain of God for me, for all his lost children. And I needed music, and so I turned on the car stereo. And I didn't know that Jen had checked out the soundtrack for Meet the Robinsons <laughs> from the library. That the CD was in the player. And so with this mixture of the mysterious love of God and the great pain I was feeling typhooning the beach of my soul, I pressed play and I heard, let it go, let it roll right off your shoulder, don't you know, the hardest part is over, let it in. Tears kept the beat. And the Holy Spirit whispered words that still sustain me in this journey. I've got him. And those were the centering words. And I chose to receive hope. Our Heavenly Father, my friends, is so good. He is so good. So kind, so on time, so aware, so purposeful, so gentle and strong. But we must choose God's hope even through pain. Choosing God's hope even through pain. This is the third of our values as KGF, as we live a culture that will know Jesus and make him known. Deeper in prayer, which is the work, scripture that is the light, and faith that is the walk. That was our first value, deeper in those things. Last week, Marcus wonderfully called us to those real relationships. Purposeful, Godward, costly. Much of life, don't you know, rises and falls on how good your relationships are. Do you ever feel that? Do you feel that this morning? But what if those relationships are painful? What if the circumstances, situations, and even our choices have produced pain? And what would a community look like who live in hope despite the pain we experience and even the pain we cause? Pain is a great human irony. It's a great irony. On the one hand, pain is a real problem because it hurts. And we don't like to hurt. <laughs> None of us do. The Bible reveals that pains, the, the, the increase of life's pain and toil is a result of the fall, which is that way of talking about the radioactive fallout of humanity tumbling into sin. We rebelled against our good God, turning from a trusting relationship with our creator to self-determination. And it hasn't gone so well. In Genesis 3, God declares that there are two curses that are the result of sin. Please listen very carefully, because I want you to understand very deep this morning. The first curse is on the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Keep your finger 
In John chapter 9, we're about to get there shortly, but we need to lay the foundation here. Genesis 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, and the serpent had deceived humanity, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the first curse is on the serpent, on the devil, Satan, who led the rebellion. This is crucial. God binds evil. What does a curse do? A curse binds something, okay? A curse binds evil and declares that God will destroy it through one made in the image of God. He will crush your head. The second curse in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of humanity's falling into sin is seen in verse 17. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit of the tree that which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And so the second curse is on the land, on that which was to be cared for by us. We were created to care for and steward that, and now it is bound. It is bound to humanity's fall from the grace from which we have fallen, and it is bound to what will eventually become of us. Sweat, sweaty toil will remind us of our own infinite reality, and we will die and return to the dust. The ground will not easily be overcome. So this is crucial for our understanding of hope and pain for three reasons. Number one, God has not, capital letters, underline and bold, God has not cursed humanity. Do you realize that? You are not cursed by God. God has intended you to be blessed and to be a blessing. We are broken, fallen, selfish, hurt, and we hurt, but we are not cursed. Hallelujah. Regardless of what you hear anywhere, God has not cursed you. That's crucial. Second, evil may wound, but evil will be crushed. We hate what hurts, and we hate evil when we see it, because it is not meant to be our experience. But there is hope. Evil may wound, but evil will be rubbed and grinded away. And third, pain is a wake-up call and a warning. Pain is a gift. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and we all love pleasure, but God only is whispering in your pleasure. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain calls us to attention, doesn't it? You touch something hot, what does your body say? Please don't do that anymore. Not a big fan of what you just did. Don't do it. Now, it's interesting. 
If you read Genesis chapter 3, you realize that actually pain existed before the fall. Because the word to the woman is, the there will be an increase in pain. And if we are made in God's image, we will feel pain because God feels pain. But after the fall, pain gets louder because the fall has deafened us to God. We have rejected and desired our own way. And pain becomes the gift that says, pay attention to what's going on. In Genesis 3, multiplied pain shows up in ways that you have experienced. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 says that because of human sinfulness, God speaks to the woman. He says, childbearing is now going to be marked by increased pain. Joyful labor becomes multiplied pain. Now, I've been in the room... It appears to hurt <laughs> a lot. Uh, so we honor the mothers. Uh, but not just for that, that grunting, screaming pain, but because we all caused our parents a lot of pain. Multiple levels of multiplied pain. You are guilty. To love that child. Okay? There's little babies in the room, like pretty new ones, Naomi. Okay? To love that child is to know you're going to hurt. Huh? When sin was welcomed into creation by humanity, it produced something we all feel. Life with those we love can be really, really painful. Don't look at your family member sitting beside you right now, okay? Because listen, what was meant to be participation in the multiplying goodness of our Heavenly Father, and Genesis 1 verse 28 says that we were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that was meant to be joyful participation in who God was. But what was meant to be that has now been marred and wrecked. And so the first story after Genesis 3 is Cain killing Abel. Adam and Eve's pain is amplified. Our refusal to relate in love with God cascades pain into the most foundational human relationship. Why does it hurt so much to love? And so sadly, some of us decide it's too hard to love, so I won't do it. Nazareth was correct in 1976. Love hurts. In a broken world, sin's explosion has hit us all with shrapnel and we, can be and we are the ones setting landmines to those closest to us. And to the man now, in verse 17, God says, cursed is the ground because of, because of you. In pain, you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. Stewarding the land is now grunt labor. Creative work is painful toil. And the entry of sin stresses unnecessarily what was meant to be joyful because the second part of God's mandate to us as human beings in Genesis 1.28 was to steward the earth. Take care of this place. Participate with me in the land. But from henceforth, we will fight with the earth. It will be painful to eke out a living. And just as that first place of relationship and identity becomes painful, well, guess what? Now the first place of contribution and purpose, our work, gets stressed. Any of you had a stressful work week? 
Was it painful? Work can be layered in its pain. It can become an idol. It can destroy relationships. Work can abuse the land, and work can abuse us back. Work can become your identity. Work, work can even warp your spirituality and convince you that God must be appeased through work rather than a joyful relationship and friendship. In this fallen world, you see, pain multiplies, but pain is a warning to remind us of hope that God will restore victorious dignity that God will restore our purpose as co-creators with him on earth. And so are you feeling in any way the deep pain of relationships or toil? How are you choosing to respond? Because you can respond to pain with bitterness and anger and resentment and numbness and rejection and self-hatred or blaming. You can choose to band-aid and medicate it. And yet it's still there after the hangover and sometimes even louder than before. Or you can listen to the wake-up call and, uh, and choose God's hope even in the midst of pain and discover the glory of God. In 1543, uh, Nicholas Copernicus radically proposed that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe. Last week, Marcus invited us to think of this Copernican re revo revolution in our re relationships where instead of uh, uh, orbiting around ourselves, we turn and put Christ at the center. And when we do that in relationships, it starts to transform our relationships. But the same is true for pain. If your pain, whatever its volume is the center around which you are orbiting, it will absolutely mess you up. We were not created to orbit around pain. Pain is to be a reminder to reorient our orbit around the hope, glory, victory, and goodness of God. Now we get to John chapter 9. So go back there. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. As he went along, Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. We have before us a moral conundrum, a man born blind. Whose fault is it? A child born blind in the ancient world, still the case in many places today actually, is a major problem because the trajectory of this family where children were the welfare policy for aging parents is bleak. They're probably destined for a life of poverty without any hope of escape. It's the dilemma of multiplied pain in childbirth, isn't it? And the disciples see the pain. They see the conundrum, and they ask this very human question, who sinned? Like, who, who's at fault? Because this man, and he's a known beggar. Verse 8 will say that everybody knew the guy was a beggar in the neighborhood. This man is the painful megaphone for all our hard questions about life, 
purpose, pain, and evil. The question reveals our propensity to orbit around pain, right? <laughs> but the man, this is so important, the man is not a moral object lesson. The man is a bearer of the image of God. Do you realize how quickly we turn people into problems? Listen to this quote. By age 20, I made every bad decision you could have thought of and went from one of the most loved and adored people in the world to one of the most ridiculed, judged, and hated persons in the world. Who said this? Justin Bieber. A teenager, many, including adults, who bought the tabloids, orbited around adoringly as he climbed to fame and then derided as he spun out of control, amplifying his mother's pain. He became an object moral lesson, and then he became less human to all of us. And Bieber ends this Instagram post that I pulled this quote from by saying this, I became resentful, disrespectful of women and angry. I was hiding behind a shell of a person that I'd become. Luckily, God blessed me with extraordinary people who love me for me. And then he says this to those millions of people who follow him on Instagram. Jesus loves you. Be kind today. Be bold today and love people today, not by your standards, but by God's perfect, unfailing love. It is Jesus, you see, in John chapter 9, who sees the blind man as a man. He reorients the orbit. Jesus reorbits re re perspective. Pain doesn't get to be the center of things where Jesus is Lord. Do you hear that? Pain does not get to be the center of things where Jesus is Lord. God's glory gets the center. So verses three to five, this is what Jesus is saying. The works of God, the victorious, serpent-stomping, recreative, reconciling purposes of God are at the center of things. Those who know Jesus are invited to join the day job of undoing the effects of sin in, the pain, in all the painful ways that it impacts humanity. And Jesus, do you notice what he says? How does he call himself in verse five? I am the, I am the sun around which things orbit. And so, which perspective are you living from? Is pain or the glory of God the center of your orbit? And this is crucial because perspective is a condition for a life of hope. Among us is Karen Busby, this wonderful sister in Christ. As a young woman, Karen was suddenly overtaken by acute, disseminated encephalitis, and I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly. And she baffled experts who essentially gave up on her, but her pained-hearted mom kept advocating and Karen kept the right orbit and listened to her own words. This, this, is, this is Karen speaking. Thank you, Karen, for letting us share this this morning. Listen, listen to what she says. As a result of overcoming these trials, I have been blessed with very powerful spiritual gifts. They include encouragement, faith, and mercy. I ended up looking at life and going through life with an appreciation for even the smallest things that some take advantage of, that some take advantage of having. 
Having everything taken from me and realizing God's grace, I give, I give it back for his purposes. I may not have a nine-to-five job that puts money in the bank, but I have treasures stored in heaven. And my situation is very rare, but listen to these words. This is awesome stuff, Karen. I experienced a revi- I love this. I experienced a variety of difficulties that blessed me with a rare mercy to reach others who need encouragement from seeing an actual person who overcame the same. Christ gave it to me, and I give to anyone he wants to reach. Thank you. See, that's the orbit. That is what it looks like to orbit on the glory of God. We choose God's hope. The reorienting perspective that even in our pain, God can reveal his glory to the world. No longer pain at the center or people as problems to be solved. We see God at the center, revealing himself through our lives, even and often through our pain. Then Jesus does this strange thing with the blind man. He takes, takes dirt, spits in it. <laughs> What's he doing? And he puts it on the guy's eyes and he becomes seeing. He's, he's healed. It's interesting, but actually not very confusing when you consider Genesis Because in Genesis chapter 3, it will be toil with the land that undoes us. Here, Jesus mixes the mud, takes the dust, and works the miracle. And the healing sets off a strange series of events. And we don't have time to read it all, but you, we can follow along. Verses 8 to 12, the neighbors now who know this guy is a beggar are confused, but the seeing man is standing on the promises of Jesus. He says, well, Jesus, the guy said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So that's what I did. And now I see. I'm just, I, that's the promise he made. And that's what I did. In verses 13 to 17, the Pharisees, who are the guardians of Jewish identity, pull him in for questioning because what has happened and this mixing of mud happened on the Sabbath, and you can't mix mud on the Sabbath. That was unlawful. But the seeing man applies the promises of God to the same law that they're trying to base that cessation of work from. And so the, Jesus, uh, the seeing man says, well, the only way anybody heals anybody is if they're a prophet. That's actually what the law says in verse 17. In verses 18 to 34, the, the Pharisees are still not satisfied. And so now they pull in his pained parents. Imagine. Imagine you're the parents. And now you, you're pulled into the thing. And, and they say, well, he can answer for himself. Because why? It says in verses 22 to 23, because they are afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid because it had been said that anybody who sees Jesus as the center, Jesus as the Messiah, would be cast out of the synagogue, out of the, out of the community. And so they're afraid of more painful social exclusion. And then the Pharisees ramp it up and they go after him. And the miracle man is a painful problem that they're orbiting around and they can't change perspective to orbit around the glory of God. And the seeing man circles on the promises of God. He gives them this grace speech in verses 30 to 33. He goes like, I don't see how you don't see it, but he is clearly the center of things. <laughs> and his orbit has completely changed. He is seeing for the first time, literally, literally, 
And his orbit is no longer the pain of a blind beggar. It is the glory of God. And the Pharisees are the ones who respond swiftly and they cast him out. They answer the disciples' initial question, who sinned? And they say to this blind guy who's now seeing, you were born in utter sin. They answer the question and they throw the man and his parents under the bus. All of you are to blame. They cannot see their own orbiting issues and they cast him out because those who orbit around pain despise those who don't join them. To hold God's promises is a second condition for choosing hope. You need a new perspective, a reorbiting that takes place and you need the promises of God. And Jesus finds the castaway and he questions him. Verse 35, he says, do you believe in the son of man? Do you trust the promise that God has made to send a Messiah who would be the light for the world? And the guy says, well, show me. Show me who he is. And Jesus comes into full view and he says, "Tis me. <laughs> it's the one talking to you. The promise has found you. The promise is present. Keep your orbit here. And the man's response is fascinating because he says, oh, I believe, I trust you. And then there's this most radical thing of all. He takes the posture of worship. And this is the last thought and perhaps the most important of all. Listen, you may not believe this, but you worship what you orbit. You worship what you orbit. And the same Greek word for worshipped here applied to this man and what he does with Jesus in this moment is the same word used in Revelation to describe how angels and heavenly beings and people from every tribe and language and tongue respond to God. Listen, this is so radical. We don't catch it. Here's why it's radical. Because Judaism made zero room for the worship of human beings. Old Testament law forbade the bowing down to an image. And this is a radical declaration of this seeing man of a willful reorbiting posture and a new way of seeing life. The seeing man, he chooses a new perspective. He trusts God's promises and he chooses to worship, to surrender himself in one direction before the one. This is the glorious mystery. This is the glorious mystery I needed to hear on a Christmas day. And things have not become perfect for our family. But I know God wasn't deceiving me when he said, I've got this, so let it go. And watch me reveal my glory. And this has changed me. It's given me hope. It's reinvigorated my worship. And even through pain. Because when we reorbit and choose God's hope, we discover a profound mystery that though sin has marred us, God in Christ has mysteriously gone out of his glorious way to orbit around us. Did you ever think about that? He chose to orbit around us. God's provision of salvation and wholeness in Christ crushes Satan and recreates us when we return to him. And we can awake as recreated miracles, little wonders through whom the glory of God is revealed. So my friends, we value, over the story of our life as a fellowship, we value a reorbiting culture that chooses hope, even through pain, 
a new perspective, to trust God's promises, to choose to worship. These practices shape our hope and they make us hope. And imagine, just imagine, the possibilities in this hopeless world for a people who live like that. Would you still your heart with me this morning? The Holy Spirit may have been speaking to you about something in your life. It could be the smallest little pain. It could be a huge pain. There's probably something that is disturbing your being, your soul, your body. Has that become your orbit? God invites you into a radical repositioning of your entire universe to centering around the light of the world. To being able to say with our sister Karen, this has been blessing. Jesus, we worship you today. With the seeing man, we bow before you, posture ourselves and say, we worship you. We give you praise and glory. Heavenly Father, you've loved us so deeply. You're so good and kind. Holy Spirit, you speak to us and point us in the way everlasting. What a good God you are. Oh God, reorient us and make us a fellowship of people who understand what it is to choose your hope, to be unashamed of your hope, to declare your hope, to offer grace and mercy and not see people as problems, but to see them as made in the image of God and the ones through whom the hope of God can be birthed into the world. Lord, give us a greater constitution and capacity to endure through suffering and pain. Forgive us for our weakness, O oh God. You know us, you know what's in us. And we need your strength and your power that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us that the hope of the world may be seen and revealed even through little wonders like us. God, we need you. Thank you for your love. And we worship you today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...